You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Many have undertaken to draw upon an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us, those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully um, investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, fulfilled Eyewitnesses, plural, carefully investigated, certainty, are all key words Luke uses in the opening verses of his gospel. So what he does is he affirms that what he has been writing, eyewitnesses have taken note. He has carefully investigated the veracity of all of the claims and all of what was recorded And he did so so that we and his readers then would know with certainty that Jesus was the Messiah. Is it possible to know anything with certainty? We normally would have said yes. Now we don't think so much, but we can know it with certainty. Is there anything anymore that's holistically true? Like, not just partially true, but holistically from start to finish. Is there anything today that kind of true? Yes. Jesus. Well, pastor, aren't we just kind of taking this man's word for it? For sure. The journey to certainty will always begin, but that's begin with some kind of word, some kind of testimony, some kind of experience, but that's not where it ends. The journey to certainty about Jesus culminates with our own personal experience of joy. So it almost doesn't matter where it starts as long as it starts. And then where it starts, if we'll follow it out to the end, you'll know for sure. Because there's going to be something different about you and your perception and how you live and how you receive things once you receive Christ. This is our third Sunday of Advent. And I have preached the themes of hope, love, joy, peace, light for 15 consecutive years. And one of the things I've learned over these 15 years is as much as I try to isolate them out and nuance them into individual messages, they're all interconnected and interrelated. They, they, they overlap one, one to another. To have the hope of Christ is to have the love of Christ. To have the joy of Christ is to have the peace of Christ. To experience the light of Christ is to experience the hope, love, joy, peace of Christ. So as much as I try to hone in on one aspect and element of Christ each Advent season, boy, they're all so interconnected. But today we will. I'll do my best to try to isolate out joy. While happiness is circumstance dependent, joy is Jesus secure. To have joy is to elevate the promise over the process. Joy evaluates the precariousness of the present 
through the lens of a secured and a fixed future. Now, that's a mouthful. I'm going to spend a lot of other mouthfuls trying to unpack that for you, and we'll circle back around to that at the end. Three sets of words express the opposite of joy, at least how I framed it out. Sadness, grief, and sorrow is, is, is one kind of grouping. Misery, despair, and trial is, a, is another grouping. And then I even thought there's one that I would identify as numb and indifferent and disheartened. And I think each of us can identify with either one of these subsets or definitely one of those words. The idea of living with joy doesn't insulate us from the real life that feeds those emotions. But living with joy does change the punctuation. It changes periods to commas. And joy overrides the propensity of being driven by any of those emotions. They might come in, but they're not the end. God comes in with a holy comma. Joy in Christ is different than just believing the best and trying to find a silver lining or just trying to find something good in the midst of something to hold on to. Really, joy in Christ is learning to believe and live in the promise, a promise. So the Old Testament ends with a series of books called the Prophets. And they're broken into two different designations. They're major prophets and there's minor prophets. But the major and minor are not an evaluation of their prophecy. Well, these are really important ones and these are not so important. Honestly, all, all the major and minor goes to is the length of the book, the length of the prophecies, all right? Major and minor, not to the value. And, and the Holy Spirit works in all these prophecies. He speaks really hard words, hard, con, words of condemnation, um, really hard rebuke words. But then he comes in with the promises. The prophecies will always contain a promise. And the promise was always a promise of Jesus. And the promise of Jesus is always going to be the seed for joy. The promise is always a seed for joy. And Malachi ends with these words. This is out of the message. Starts out with count on it. I love it. Count on it. The day is coming, raging like a forest fire. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like stove wood, burned to a crisp, nothing left but scorched earth and ash, a black day. But for you. So here's the comma. But for you. Here's a word of hope. He says sunrise. But for you. Sunrise. Sunrise is a word of joy. So the sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, healing, radiating from its wings. You will be bursting with energy like cults frisking and frolicking, and you'll tromp on the wicked. There will be nothing but ashes under your feet on that day. God of the angel armies say so. I love how the message kind of fleshes that out. It's kind of like God's not enough. We need, we need, we need an adjective. We, we need something to kind of, kind of flesh him out some more. So he's not just God. He's a God of angel armies. So I believe when we circle back to the words count on it, we can count on it. The son of righteousness will dawn as a joy-filled expression. New days do bring new joy. 
the, the night that we've just experienced with the sunrise, there is, there's hope and there's joy for maybe something different. And, and this promise comes out of Malachi, and then in our Bibles, everything's so static and flat and one-dimensional, two-dimensional, and we turn a page, and in that page, there's 400 years of silence between this promise, this count on it, and then any other word or description from God. 400 years. We have a hard time sitting still and quiet for 40 minutes. Say, so we'll, we'll test you today. But 400 years. And with that 400 years, they looked and they prodded. But then when the 400 years were over, we have God speaking again. In a message this year I called, Damn the Torpedoes, Full Speed Ahead, I said this. Nothing is over until God says it's over. That's a comma. But when God says it's over, it's over. That's a period. And this is what we'll get to today. So the birth narratives of Jesus only occupy four chapters in Scripture. Two in the Gospel of Matthew, two in the Gospel of Luke, but they are some of the most treasured parts of the Gospels. So not far past Luke's opening lines, which I read to you at the very beginning. He introduces the readers to an elderly couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah was a priest, and um, he was fulfilling a particular duty on this occasion where he was lighting the incense in the temple. This would have been a special um, job assignment, if you will. M more than likely, it was very possible this was been the first time that Zachariah would have done this. So in his long years of service through a, their own lottery, their own, their own rotation of, of priestly clans and families, and, and it lands on Zechariah now. And I can only imagine, based on what happens after this fact, that Zechariah probably was going through the motions. That after all these years of being a priest, of all the, he would have known Malachi's prophecy to the letter. And I imagine as a young man entering into uh, taking the responsibilities of these priestly duties, he must have been very, very excited. He would have entered the temple with high expectation that maybe this was the year. Maybe this was the year. Maybe this was the year. But now, his better years are behind him. He and his wife, who had tried and tried and tried for a child of their own, nothing and I imagine that he entered into this particular assignment on this particular day somewhat split, some, some, somehow in a, in a melancholy mood. Like, I'm excited that I get to, to step up into this moment, and yet I step up into this moment somewhat half-heartedly. This did not turn out the way I thought it would. And so, with his mind racing in one direction, and he's body operating into what his calling was in that moment and leading the nation in worship, an angel appears. And what's unique and what you see a lot about when angels appear in, in the New Testament and uh, even in the Old Testament, they start with don't be afraid. And I think it's probably a pretty good opening line, right, for an angel, right? And he's startled and so the startling has to be somewhat tempered with don't be afraid and that, and it's fascinating the first line of, of this encounter said so the angel says don't be afraid and he says your prayer has been heard I, I don't know if we need any other seeds of joy from God this morning other than this 
Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. These are the first words 400 years after a prophecy that no doubt has gotten lost in the process and in the pause. See, we treat pause as if it's empty. We treat pause as if it's um, never going to happen. And yet God always uses pause in process. Like sometimes I know, look, I just need to know you're working. Like I, I can handle the moment if I know you haven't forgotten me and you haven't forgotten the situation. And if you can just reassure me that something's working, even if I can't see it, I'll be okay. But for 400 years, they didn't get any of that until this one. And then it comes full force. Don't be afraid. I've heard your prayer. It goes on. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. And here's, here's a man in need of joy. Here's a man that hasn't probably delighted in a while, and he definitely wasn't delighting in the moment when he should have been. But then the delight and the joy is that he's going to get a son. And not any son. That this son's going to be a delight to a whole bunch of people. What a promise. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine and other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. I don't know if Zachariah is sitting down at this point. And it will go on before the Lord. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah Boom, big Old Testament prophet. To turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Uh-oh. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time, at the end of the process. Now, what I didn't read you was the ending of the prophecy of Malachi, verses 5 and 6. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children hearts of their children to their parents or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. <laughs> A lot of correlation between Malachi chapter 4 and the prophecy here being, being brought forward by the angel and Zechariah, like I said, he would have known this to the letter. And yet, and yet his response is one of doubt. And it's, it's troubling when you look at it in, in just a flat piece of paper, but then you put yourself in the moment, and if you've waited so long for even a mission from God, a purpose from God, and you get that purpose, that purpose is given to you, who among us hasn't questioned that? Who, me? Lord, you've spent your lifetime, it seems, my lifetime, getting me to the place where I would ask who is me. But when I started this thing, I said, it's me, right? It's me. And now at the end of my life, I'm saying, me? 
And then how many of us, when God will speak a promise that a long or a dark season is ending, how many of us would not have then said, how? How? We've tried everything. I've gone through every emotion imaginable. I've tried every angle. We've waited on you. We've waited on you personally. We've waited on you as a nation. Who among us would not have said how? And with that, the angel doesn't strike him. The angel does, though, say, all right, well, this joy that I've promised you, it's going to be a long season, brother, before you're able to talk about it. Right? Now, it's, it's 40 weeks. It's nine months. There's not going to be anything from your... I have just, in the height of your career of a priestly job. I'm giving you this great news that you've been praying for, you and your wife, your whole married life, and now you're going to have to sit on that because you didn't believe me. We learn from Luke 1 and Matthew 1 that both Mary and Joseph were also afraid with their angelic encounters because the angel said to both of them, do not be afraid. And yet the difference we find here is that Mary, Mary receives... Be it unto me as you have said. Joseph obeys. When Joseph dreams over, Scripture says he gets up and goes to her. How how do you live in the process? How do you maintain through the pause? How how do you live with joy? I, I don't have a lot of answers to that, but what I pull from the Scripture this week is obey, receive, obey, And then, interesting enough, sing. (laughs) Sing. Because we have two songs that come out of these birth narratives, one from Mary and one from Zechariah that I want to go through. Here here is Luke 1. This is actually preceding the song. Luke 1, verse 39. At the time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So so these stories now become intertwined. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. (laughs) Mary's first blessing, if you will, comes from the blessing that she believed. Not that she had birthed yet. Promises always begin. They are the seed of joy. That little piece is a very timely telling of a story, especially in light of our, our, our country's continual struggle with Roe Wade and the Supreme Court, doesn't it? That, that the, the story here starts with the interaction of two unborn babies. <laughs> one, one brings joy, one receives joy. It's amazing. We have the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary, and Mary conceives. We have the Holy Spirit entering the room through Mary and the baby, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. 
John responds to all of this, and he frolics himself. Now, if you ever want to know what frolic and look, I was going to, thought about demonstrating that to you today. <laughs> thought, please, someone says, please, this side said, please not, right? <laughs> but I think this is the bursting in song that Malachi is talking about. And so then Mary, then Mary, whether or not it's in this moment or another moment, we have, we have in the birth narratives, we have Mary's song. It's, it's, it's called the Magnificat which means it's Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. And she pens these words. Who knows what the melody is? He says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds. All this just welling up inside of her, just kind of coming out. He has scattered those who are proud in the inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And, and it's, he's saying those, those who feel like they have it all, you don't have it all. And if, you, if, if you're dependent on you having it all and that all is not in Christ, it's just going to be empty. At some point in time, it's going to be empty. And this is what this is magnifying here. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as promised our ancestors. When you break down her song, she, the song comes from this idea that, that God has knowledge of her and his deeds for her. She's, she's praising, she's rejoicing because of God's knowledge of who she is and what she has done for him. There should be joy that exhibits out of us, guys, because God knows who we are. And then she praises God for his extended mercy through all of the past deeds that were done. Why is it important to give honor and to rejoice in the past deeds of God, to rehearse those? I said it this Easter. Because what God did, God still does. And so we rehearse those deeds, those personal deeds that he's done for you. You rehearse those because they bring back up the joy that's been layered under all these other situations and circumstances and disappointments. And she's doing that in her song and she's teaching us to do it. She's rejoicing God for the reordering of authority when she talks about lifting up the humble. What, what flashed at me in these next two lines is, is Jesus' first sermon when he said, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. <laughs> She's giving him the opening notes for his sermon. And then she says, and filling the hungry with good things. Jesus also said in that sermon, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Good content from Mary. He's mindful of where you are. These aren't just eternal or, or international or national promises to Israel. These are promises for you and I to get. And Mary's joy was expressed while she was still in the womb. She would maximize the time of her joy. And what struck me in this is when we doubt the promises of God from Christ and our own life, and we doubt those, based on what we see here, we limit the amount of time we get to live in joy. 
Mary receives, she's joyful. She hadn't got sick the first time yet. There's been no foot into the side of the, the belly. There's, there's, been, there's been no indication at this point that she's pregnant and she's already joyful. So she is extending the time of joy. Joseph, he gets up immediately and starts taking care of the four different dreams. God's telling him four different times to take care of something to protect this child. And all four times it says he got up and he did it. So he's living immediately in the joy. There's no regret. There's no, I wasted too much time. All in joy. Zachariah, he missed out on 40 weeks of joy. Now, I want you to sit in this for a moment. When, when God speaks a promise to you and we do not obey it and we don't receive it, but we doubt it, we ourselves are limiting the time that we get to spend in joy. We're in control of that. Now, nothing bad happens, right? John the Baptist is born, Zachariah, but when Zachariah says his, his name will be John, boom. And then now Zachariah comes up with a song. But that song had been bubbling in him for 40 weeks. And he couldn't express it. So, so if he was joyful, no one really kind of knew. And here is, his song is called the Benedictus, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is Zechariah's song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, but he is, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said, or as he promised through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. 400 years, God breaks his silence. 40 weeks later, another song. And those promises are something to sing about. Well, I said, we don't know the melody of, of Mary's song. We don't know the melody of Zachariah's song. But we do know the melody to Psalm 98. Or at least we know the one that Isaac Watts puts to it in 1719. Isaac Watts produced a hymnal with the specific intention of reading um, a New Testament perspective into an Old Testament book. The Psalms and the prophet Isaiah have more messianic prophecies than any other two books in the Old Testament. And what Isaac Watts decided to do, he was going to write this whole hymnal looking at the Psalms for their promise towards a Messiah as if it had already done which it had. And he writes those Psalms. And Psalm 98 is where we get the song that we sang today, Joy to the World. He interprets this psalm through, those, through that lens that Christ has already come and he's already our Savior. Listen to the psalm out of 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It's, it's a rehearsal of past deeds. I mean, this is Mary and Zechariah, they have read the Psalms. They, knew the, they, they would, knew the, know, would have known the formation of a Psalm. They would have known the contents of certain types of Psalms. And it's no wonder that they write these songs and these Psalms in the New Testament with that knowledge. Psalm 98 continues, shout for joy to the Lord. And all the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord your king. I mean, this is David writing this. David was a king. Kings are supposed to be, you know, dignitaries, but David was also a worship leader. And he wasn't going to let his kingly duties cram down and stifle his calling as a worship leader. In fact, we have documented that when, when, the, when the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into Jerusalem for the first time, he is leading the parade and he's dancing at, at such um, fervor that it embarrasses his wife. Gentlemen, have you ever embarrassed your wives? <laughs> maybe not over this, but maybe in general dancing, maybe in general and his wife, she's ashamed. You disrobed in front of, I can't believe. And she's all like prim and proper. And his response is fabulous. His response is, you want to see undignified? I can get a whole lot more undignified in my worship in your eyes than what just took place. That's a burst, folks. That's a burst. And this is what Watt does when he writes this song. What I love about Joy to the World is it doesn't have a slow ramp-up beginning, does it? Right? Joy to the world. I mean, it, and if you sing it any less than that, you're not bursting. <laughs> you're not bursting with jubilant song. And Isaac was bursting. And it's why he starts out with such a bang. And you know what? The thing never slows down. It includes past acts of God. And, and then the this, this symphony, I mean, it's like he sees forward into this next, this last stanza. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Huh? Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. David is rejoicing. Isaac comes in and sees this. He writes some of the very same things. You know, we're taught in Scripture that even the earth longs for the return of Christ. That it was created in perfection, and it has been corrupted. We know when Jesus enters into Jerusalem the week before, before Passover and, and, and the Pharisees are saying, will you tell everybody to calm down? He said, look, if they stop the rocks, we'll cry out. It's like if someone doesn't recognize who I am, my creation will make it known. And what would be more disruptive? These people singing or that, those rocks over there standing up and, you know, doing their jazz hands? I mean, what's going to be? more disruptive, jubilant. I completely 
understand and have experienced the same two years you have. You've, some of you have experienced loss. My family's experienced loss. And there's families in here that have experienced loss, have experienced loss together. There, there has been a, a weight to the last two years that possibly you have never experienced in your life. Things that you took for granted and there was no, you couldn't take it for granted anymore. And if we allow just, just the weight of life to suppress this joy, we are not believing and obeying. And we're definitely not singing. And we're suppressing the amount of time that we have to live in joy. Don't allow anything else to have that kind of power over you and over a promise. The promises of God. Let me try to put a a bow on this. Five bullets. One, joy is sparked by a promise. Don't waste another minute. Go ahead and enjoy the promise. You you don't have to wait till it's fulfilled to enjoy the promise. Joy in Jesus isn't wishful thinking. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, the so be it, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts at a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, another promise. The reason why we celebrate at such a level Christmas, Advent, is because that, the fulfillment of that promise is the fulfillment of every promise he has ever made to you. If that promise goes unfulfilled, then every other promise will go unfulfilled. But since he fulfilled that promise, listen, he has heard your prayer. And you can trust him for the outcome. Joy is not depleted. Joy is not depleted in the pause or in the process. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but have everyone come to repentance. He is not slow in concerning his promises as some understand slowness. Now think about that. How do you understand slowness? Um, Disinterested? If God's slow in keeping his promise to me, does that mean he's not as interested in this as I am? That this is not as important to him as it's important to me? Does it mean that he's hit some kind of snag in his ability to make, make good on what, on what he said? I mean, that's how we understand slowness. I'm not, as, I'm not important to you. You're going to take care of somebody else before you get to me. That's how we understand slowness. Am I telling the truth? So he said, he's not slow in keeping his promises as others understand slowness. So if that's your understanding of slowness from God, it is a misunderstanding. Trust the process. Joy is supported by history. 
God's past work in history opens the door for his promise to be applied to me. And the last one is joy culminates in a firsthand experience with God's loving kindness expressed in Jesus. Now, if you know the story, you'll probably say, well, Pastor Mary, Mary did kind of question the angel, right? She asked, how will this take place? She didn't ask, why'd you choose me? She didn't, all right, can you fill her question was different than Zachariah's. Zachariah was complete doubt. Mary's is kind of, I'd like to know how this mechanics of this is going to work. And when he said something as bizarre as the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, she didn't go, say what? <laughs> Let it be to me as you have said. Because the angel says, Nothing is impossible with God. That's a great answer. I don't understand how something can come from nothing. He goes, oh, it's okay. One way to translate this says, no word of God will ever go unfulfilled. That's the nuance of the the Greek in this. You, You can marry these two. No word of God will go unfulfilled. The other nuance is nothing is impossible with God. This morning, our response is going to be to sing again joy to the world. As usual, communion is open to my left and my right. The altar is open for you to come find a way in your movement to receive and obey today. And do it fast enough that you don't miss singing. So, Father, it, it, it is, I believe in this moment that some that's watching online or will catch this later, Lord, and some in the room, they're, they're hanging on to the promise like the end of a thread of a tattered blanket. It's, it's been, the promise has been so old. that there's only threads of it left. But yet, Lord, if that's what you've spoken, I pray there will be some receiving in the room today. And Lord, if you've spoken a promise that was contingent upon our action, and the reason why we haven't received the promise is because we have have hesitated in our obedience. Lord, I pray that in this moment, that would be broken. Lord, as well, as you have spoken a promise that is so unbelievable that somebody doesn't know what to do with it. And for all of us, Lord, may our reception and our obedience come out of our singing today. I invite you to stand. Now, I know when we have response like, Pastor, don't you normally bring it down to some kind of calm moment? Yes. Is that going to be how it happens today? No. But listen, you're also going to miss it if you just decide to go through the motions of singing and there's no reflection on the reception and obedience to the promise.
So please don't hesitate to receive communion if that's what you've come here today. Come to the altar. Someone, well, I can pray for you and sing joy to the world all at the same time. I can do that. And so can our elders, so can the rest of our pastoral staff. But when we start the song, y'all need to start moving and start bursting or frolicking. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.